Nah, we're here with the Godfather. <laughs> the Godfather. Um, so, Bruce, uh, can you introduce yourself? Um, yeah, I'm Bruce Bugby. I'm a professor at Utah State University, and I've now celebrated my 40th year of teaching and research at Utah State. Um, and I also have a little side business called Apogee Instruments that makes... Uh, Lots of radiation sensors. Nice. We're here also with uh, Roach. Yep. What's going on? How's everybody doing? And Morgan. Hey, what's up? Um, Bruce, uh, what what R and D projects are you are you working on right now? We have three big projects, and I guess, given my the forty year career I talked about. I've actually got more funding and more students right now than I've ever had. So it's a pretty active time. We, do, you, do you think that's because of the cannabis industry? No. Okay. It, it is partly because of that. Uh, it's my whole career. I've gotten funding from NASA, competitive grants, usually in three-year packets. And that stuff is all to feed people in space, grow food for people in space, in a very controlled, regenerative environment. Um, and, and in NASA's case, you can't just build a greenhouse on Mars or the moon because there's no atmosphere. The meteorites would smash it. So you have to have it real protected. And that means electric lights. And, and now with the LEDs coming along, wow, that really made food production a lot better. So um, you're um, having um, a lot of inspiration from like SpaceX and guys that want to. Yeah. And, and in my case, that started in the early 1980s when I first got funding from them. And back then there were no LEDs. They were way <laughs> out in the future. We were, we were all using metal halide, high pressure sodium. And all the research we did on that was with filters. We took the lights and put all kinds of theatrical filters in there. To get different colors. To spectrums. create these spectras. Yeah. And so some of those papers are a long time ago, but they're now being cited. What, uh, what projects are you working right now on with NASA? The, the big one is called the CUBES project, and that stands for Center for the Utilization of Bioengineering in Space. And most of the people in that group are working on microbial transformations of things to uh, recycle waste back into something usable. For, for example, one group is working on microbes that can make a type of a polymer that we can use in 3D printers to print a microbial product that we put in 3D printers and, and print things out of it. So it's a microbial-based plastic, for example. Now, they're, they're doing this with plants, or they're doing this in the soil, or how's... how's no, the, the microbes grow in a bioreactor. Okay. And it's a controlled condition. But they change the environment, so they make these polymers. They're like a plastic polymer. Um, nice. That's, that's one group in this. That NASA specifically wanted additional research on higher plants for food, and... As you can quickly see, they're making plenty of purified water for the people. They're uh, recycling waste. We put all the waste right back in the root zone after appropriate composting. Um, and they also produce all the oxygen that people need. So this is a sealed thing with plants in it. Yeah, that's awesome. 
That's the NASA funded work. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, you're also working with the USDA on some stuff? Then we hit on another big grant with the USDA, and this one is called the LAMP Project, L-A-M-P, Lighting Approaches to Maximize Profits. So as the acronym sounds, it's way more applied. How do we help growers optimize lighting to maximize profits? And we wrote it that way on purpose because it includes supplemental light in greenhouses and indoor agriculture. Both places use a lot of lights. So that's a lot of the same goals as NASA, but way more immediately applied on Earth. Yeah, right away. Um, have you seen a large uptick in the last you know, five to ten years on cannabis cultivation as far as taking some of your time? It, yes. Research? We, because we had a reputation for doing controlled environment research, growers were anxious to fund us to help them with cannabis cultivation. And this was several years ago before it was federally legal. But the minute low THC cannabis became federally legal, then we could take their money. And we started doing research on cannabis almost literally the next day. Um, low THC it, cannabis. And this was all, the license was for low yeah. THC cannabis. Um, and so we got a big jump start because we'd been doing so much of this controlled research before that. So, so cannabis is now a big part of the lab like a third of the funding comes from for uh, cannabis cultivation. No, that's huge. Um, High THC as well? Well, good question. Our license is only to do low THC cannabis, but low THC and high THC cannabis are only separated by one gene. And so it's like field corn and sweet corn. They're only separated by one gene. So we do research on low THC and extrapolate to high THC. You, which works pretty well for most things, but when you get in the nuances of uh, quality, then then there's some differences. Got it. You could lose uh, federal funding if you do higher than... Yeah, I think NASA wouldn't be happy if we started the word get out. We were studying yeah. high THC cannabis. They, they might get sideways with the president or something, and <laughs> NASA would get all its cutting funding cut. Or I yeah. don't want to be responsible for that. Yeah. But but what you learn by working with NASA and USDA, you know, it applies. It translates to these controlled environments people are yeah, working yeah. in now. Yeah, directly applies. Yeah. NASA is all food crops. Although I guess we could tell them we got to grow uh, hemp for fiber. We got to make clothes for these astronauts. So. Need we some high THC up that. there too. Yeah. Oh, but yeah. accidentally that Oops. fiber. <laughs> I'm we waiting. Want it, we want it dual purpose, right? Yeah. Slip, yeah. slip a few. Yeah. In. yeah. Wear it, smoke it. You know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you're also a business owner and have 40, 40 employees. Um, can you talk about? Can you talk about that? Yeah, that sort of started accidentally. Almost, I I was making light meters just at my kitchen table. I converted voltmeters into put photodiodes in the top and I built them for my laboratory and we, I built quite a few and then visiting scientists would come and they'd see these and they'd go, oh my God, this is terrific. Could you make one for me? Well, they were friends and sure. So I started making some more and then pretty soon people started calling me up and say, you don't know me, but I want to buy one of your meters 
and then I that's so I started Apogee to uh, make these. And it people say it started in my garage, but it really started at my kitchen table. <laughs> <laughs> but so Bruce, you know that that requires understanding of semiconductors and silicon photodiodes and electronics. I mean that's that's a little bit of a different skill set than your your normal work and it, and I think that translates <laughs> to uh to LEDs as well and understanding the yeah. the physics behind there. So can you give a little background about your interest and your yeah. your expertise in that? Yeah, I I started school in engineering. I, I was good at math in high school and I would become an engineer. So I started studying engineering. Mostly it was mechanical, but some electrical. And then I engineering was following all the rules and doing fixed stuff and I I took some biology classes and I thought wow these people need help I mean this is this is really complicated and but to me biology was science and engineering was following the rules and repeatedly doing things and so the science part of biology was just fascinating and I and I switched to biology but that my engineering background helped a lot because I could be do a real quantitative biology because of that yeah we've been uh doing a little r&d ourselves you know um with morgan and we we learned a lot uh we learned red light plants like red light um and especially in a vegetative state we've seen um some big significant differences what what have you seen in your in your lab with using red light well for starters from an engineering standpoint that's a really efficient led color and because photosynthesis is driven by number of photons and not by energy the longer the wavelength photons the more efficient they are so red is longer than green green's longer than blue so just from the pure physics of it, going to a longer wavelength photon gives you more photons with the same amount of electricity, which is a big part of the reason they're so efficient. But in addition to that, well, red is the opposite color to green. So it's really well absorbed by plant leaves. And it really, per photon, it's, it's, because it's well absorbed, it results in a lot of photosynthesis. And, and that results in a lot of plant growth. So not only is it efficient from an electrical standpoint, but it's really efficient from a physiological standpoint in all green organisms, algae, plants, everything. They have just absorbed those photons really well. So that's why we're seeing, you know, with our veg lights, I mean, as cultivators growing up in the cannabis industry for so long, we've always been using blue light. And now that we've done all these testings, we're seeing it's the opposite. What What's your thoughts on blue light with veg, and why do you think mm -hmm. cultivators have been using it for so long? Many years ago, I don't know, 15 years ago, everybody was metal halide for veg, high-pressure sodium for reproduction, flowering. And, well, why do you do that? Well, I don't know everybody does it. That was always the answer. Until one day I realized, well, duh, the high blue light from metal halide keeps the plants compact and short, and that's really what you want to have. And then after they're flowering, you can use more efficient high-pressure sodiums because they're, they're making flowers now. They're not going to get too tall. 
So I think it was the observation that metal halide helped keep those plants compact in veg, and then they could use the more efficient high-pressure sodium later. I'd never heard anybody say that was because of high blue, but now we know that's true, now that we can manipulate spectra. So blue photons are terrific for keeping plants compact. You know, we, um, we, we've tested the three different spec- three main spectrums that we're releasing at Lux. Um, we're doing the, the ADR um, and the 90R, um, which is 90% red and 80% red. Um, but compared to the 80, the 90 R keeps the plant a lot shorter, stockier, um, compared to the ADR and, and metal highlights. So it's like that high, high red is getting even a shorter, stockier mm-hmm. plant. Why do you, why do you think that is? The first thing I would look at is carefully is the intensity of light, the total photon flux, nine, you call it. 90R yeah, or R90. Yeah, 90% red. Yeah. If that, then since that'd be a little more efficient, that means the photon flux is a little higher for the same watts of input energy. So high-intensity light also keeps plants shorter. Oh. But we, we, we just looked at that, and, and with our prototypes, they're pretty close to the same PPFD, but, but um, a little bit counterintuitively, the 90R has higher blue than the 80R. <laughs> Yes, and the ADR. You didn't tell, you didn't tell me that. Yeah, that's the trick, well, yeah. trick question. Hey, we, well, we went over it earlier. This was right before you got there. We were looking at them, and we were we were going back and forth on that, right? Yeah. So yeah. they do have a higher percentage of blue, which which actually directly goes with what he's saying, right? So what what percentage greater? So the than ADR this? has less blue. ADR than is like seven percent blue, and the ninety R is ten percent blue. Yeah, and oh, then wow. the the other the other side of the story is that blue LEDs should be more efficient than white. But just because of the economics of LED production, the white LEDs are the same efficiency, same efficacy as the blues because the, they use the best underlying mm-hmm. LEDs in the whites. So they end up being really close to the same performance. Our, our 90% R90 fixtures like 3.15 and our 80% like 3.05 micromoles per joule, mm-hmm. both exceptional, um, but not as big of a drop off as you might think. Do you think there's a place for blue light in cannabis, indoor cannabis cultivation as far as like metal highlight? Well, you could use metal highlight to get some blue, but yeah. I think that where we're headed is all LED fixtures just because they're so much more efficient yeah. than um, metal halide. Um, yeah, I mean, you could ask the question, why don't we do use 100% red? And, and the first thing I would say was, well, then it's hard to see the plants. There's no green at all. But I don't know. Let's say you have a headlamp or something, and could, that's not an issue. Um, we've done studies on minimum blue light, blue photons. And we've done them. That was mostly with NASA funding with lettuce, soybeans, wheat, other kinds of cucumbers, other kinds of crops. Um, but when we've done them on... Uh, cannabis they do get taller but if the intensity is high enough they don't become unmanageable tall and that's with zero blue wow so now a little bit of blue helps keep them short and that's sort of risky territory to not have any blue at all yeah but the plants grew fine 
with no blue at all. You just have to have the intensity there. You just have to have the intensity. Got yeah. It. And you also just put out a paper talking about uh, color rendering of these horticultural fixtures. And I think that's pretty important and doesn't get discussed enough. Do you want to just mention that a little bit? Yeah. I think we that was a NASA technical memo. Do you, if this guy reads all kinds of yeah. <laughs> no, it was, yeah, yeah. But, but we did put out a paper and I can't remember where it's published um, but it's but it's open access anyway years ago we told people quit thinking about foot candles that's only for people that's a bad metric just forget about it well that led to purple fixtures blues and reds and you can't diagnose your plants you can't tell if they have subtle nutritional disorders you can't tell if there's microscopic insects you got to have some green in there and we've seen this directly we we did a study it got some uh, spider mites and we under the high pressure sodium we just didn't see them but under leds with more green with a better color rendering index we saw them right away and man, that's pretty important um, to be able to diagnose those subtle disorders. So now color rendering index becomes a big deal in yeah. fixtures. And I, and I think your new that fixture was, is a pretty high. Yeah. That was one of our design rules with, with the new fixtures. We needed to be able to work under them. I mean, in, and there, there are different settings, uh, which is why we brought in the, the R90, the, the, the blue and red fixture as well because there's different settings where it's you know maybe uh in a in a stack setting it's it's okay you can have the the blue and red and, and have your aisles be white or something like that but the the r80 is it has good color quality for people and that was one of our targets um in the in the development there isn't that a rf50 i think and that the the yeah the color fidelity fidelity index is like Maybe. 50 i think it's 50 and the cri is like 40 we were talking about that yeah we were day. and i'm it's the specs on your fixture but morgan and i were talking about it. i think the the old metric cri was 44 and by the new improved metric it's like 50. It's, it's 50 which which is very adequate high pressure it's better than high pressure sodium how are you liking the specs of our new lights oh i, I it's great um the it's we wrote a paper with Morgan and I and one of my really excellent graduate students a while back and we said here's the spectrum we think would be ideal well that's pretty close to the spectrum yeah. you have yeah that was really close <laughs> yeah that that was the that was the process you know we we I brought we brought at Lux was okay you know these are the new guidelines this is this is the new understanding uh, you know, LEDs are the new technology. What can we do with that? And we, we followed that kind of playbook. And uh, and we and then, you know, we had to throw them over the wall to Roach and Ivan and, and see how <laughs> see how things really worked out. And it, there's some trials and tribulations, but it's it's worked out pretty well. Yeah, no, 100%. Why, why is it that these high red spectrums in the flower room bleach out all the tops of the nugs? You know, we would really like to know the answer to that. So the whole planet right now would like to figure that out. So we've had some pretty sophisticated and detailed discussions with other physiologists of what's going on. And the short answer is we don't know. But 
the more detailed answer is we still that doesn't keep us from making hypotheses about Theories. what might be going yeah. on. And my personal thinking is it's happening in the cells in the meristem of a young flower way before they come out and show in the top. It's not like they come out green and they go white. If you watch them carefully, they come out white. Yep. So that means those cells didn't have chlorophyll two or three weeks previous, and then they just multiplied and they came out to the top. At the cellular level. Yep, at yep. the cellular level. Yeah, yep. they're getting bleached. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's a remarkable thing. It's, we had not seen this in any other plants because it's not, we call that chlorotic when there's less chlorophyll. It's, it's yellow. These are not chlorotic, they're white. There's no chlorophyll at all. Um, and it's an intensity multiplied by a spectral effect. It's it, kind of like too much of a good thing. You know, maybe. Yeah. Plant can't it, reproduce itself fast enough to let the color keep up. Yeah. It, it almost seems like. Sort of. Yes, it could be. When it's be, young because except, it's in such an explosive growth. It's yeah. happening so fast. You're putting so much red on it. And it's just like, I can't. But, but but now, Roach, when we get into this, then then you say, well, if that's the case, doesn't it happen with all colors? No, it has to be high red. Yeah, yeah. And happens. if we if we had less red, we give them really bright light, it wouldn't happen. Yep. It's really interesting. It has to be high light and high red both. So those two numbers together are a fraction of a daily light integral of just red. That's above some number. You get white tips. I, I will say it, there's a lot of interactions with genetics. If we're going to breed things, I think we can genetically select away from it. We've seen that too. Yeah, we've seen that. You know, we yeah. run hundreds of strains and we'll see ones that are more uh, sensitive to light than others. Yeah. But we've it's seen a big stuff, We've a, seen certain strains go yeah. bleach under a, a HPS light, you know. Nothing even yeah. crazy high intensity, just certain, certain genetics yeah. do that. Yeah. yeah. What's the what's the number that you're seeing in your labs that you're seeing that bleaching? For the percentage, it's not so much the percentage. I would say it's um, the DLI. Huh? If we give a, above a, a DLI of about six hundred micromoles per meter square per second of red, we start to see it. Um, and then if it gets more than that, we see it more. And, and again, this is with a 12-hour photo period. So certainly 1,000 micromoles with an 80% red would give you 800 micromoles of red, which would be plenty to see it. Yeah. So, so That's an approximate number, but, it's, but it gives you the concept of what's the threshold of red photons. We'll, ha- we'll have to check that out because we stepped down the red percentage when we were doing this development to see where where the bleaching was initiated and definitely it was it was uh 55 percent yeah that was like conservative and it depends on the on the cultivar yeah Mm -hmm. it was even happening even that low at some you know some bleaching yeah um yeah we're testing it in a greenhouse right now i'm interested to see how the daylight and that spectrum three works because if you use spectrum three uh, the 80 the 80 yeah oh sorry yeah yeah spectrum yep. three to us but 80 r80 r80 um in a greenhouse 
um, or in an indoor environment, you'll bleach out your whole entire flower room. Um, but in a greenhouse environment where I'm testing it at my greenhouse right now in Nevada, um, we'll see how it does with the mixed sunlight. Yes, that's yeah. What do you think? Let me let me know how you, you <laughs> find out. <laughs> yeah, so I'm interested to yeah. see if 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 my theory of of threshold of 600 holds, it doesn't matter where those 600 come from. They could be from sunlight. Exactly. That's what, so that's what I was going to calculate it out. You know, for winter, winter when you're using max max uh, supplemental yep. light, and the normal spectrum and the DLI for uh, for daylight. And the, and the red DLI for daylight. And so run the numbers and see where we end up. And then Brandon can put his uh, crops yeah. at risk. Yeah, yeah it's fine. I mean, it's we'll... been a relatively recent thing when people started using higher fraction of red like you are and higher light, both. All of a sudden, oh, shit. We, yeah, we get something. This is well, because they're pretty directly related too, right? You know, higher percentage of red, higher, yeah. higher yeah. light because they're so efficient. Both of those. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, so we're talking about red and let's, let's go into UV, the other opposite of the spectrum. Are you studying a lot on UV right now? We are. And the, especially in the cannabis world, the conventional wisdom is that you can increase cannabinoids and increase THC by giving UV photons. And it's based on almost exclusively on a paper by a guy named Leiden. It's Leiden and somebody else who studied it like 25 years ago. And they were looking at uh, sunburn protection from, from the sun because cannabinoids absorb UV and they can protect a plant against sunburn. And so they were only doing leaves of plants. But in one of their cultivars, the more you, they gave it more UV and it made more cannabinoids. In the leaves. And in the other cultivar, it didn't happen. And so lots of people have said, well, Leiden has proven that high UV makes cannabinoids go up. And if you read Leiden's paper, in the last sentence of the abstract, he says, so the effect of UV is equivocal. Now you look up equivocal, and it means uncertain. <laughs> we don't know if it does it anything. It happened once. We don't know if it was, <laughs> but, you know. But people, just... everybody cites that paper, and they said, Leiden shows it helps. Well, maybe it does. So, so we've done a series of studies with UV, different doses at different time intervals. And so far, we've not been able to show that UV increases cannabinoids yeah. in the flowers. That paper, it was UVB too. Just, just to be clear, right. it wasn't UVA. So that means you got to find a UV source that's like three twenty nanometers. That's uh, sun, the sunburn portion of the yes. UV spectrum, not not the black light portion when, of when, the spectrum. And when we did our research on the UV part, we used a uh, UVB fluorescent light. We didn't have UVB LEDs at the time, but, but we, we made still, you some. But now we, we do because you, yeah. you got us some. Yeah. So the yeah, UV LEDs expensive. are more more narrow. <laughs> Those are some expensive lights. <laughs> yeah, they're they're more narrow and but but in in general we haven't found the effect that we thought we would. And the concept is, cannabinoids are what we call secondary metabolism. The plant doesn't have to make them; it just makes them as a supplemental compound. And UV light triggers secondary metabolism, like you can make green lettuce turn red with uh, UV. 
And that's secondary metabolism. My phone's going. So what happens when you're a business owner? Yeah. <laughs> that's what, yeah. It's, it stopped. Thanks. You're good. I, they gave up. They give up quickly on me. Two rings and. So it's did gone. you did you look at? So you said you did UVB. Did you look at UVA then as well? We did. We did. Yeah. That didn't. That didn't help either. How long have you been looking at UV? Oh, I don't know. A, a year. Yeah. A little over a year, maybe. You find out a lot in a year. You know. Well, yeah, if you stay focused on it and grow crops, yeah. M Morgan, the UVA that we're using was LEDs at th uh, 390 and 380 because mm -hmm. they're still quite efficient. Yeah. So it was we've, almost visible. We've made some test bars at, at 395 and some 385 bars are in, in, uh, uh, on the way. So we're, we're mm -hmm. going to look at, uh, you know, have that as a tool to... to check mm -hmm. that out but based on what you've been telling me and what you're saying right now you know it's it's uh maybe a little bit marginal and then taking it to the next level trying to apply it at scale it might even you know just be that much more difficult when you could do other things like increase your red or or yeah have other knobs to turn there's two different ways of testing you know steady state and pulse uv right yeah yeah, pulsed might mean very high frequency, but sort of phasic. You know, give them just for an hour a day. Or, that, yeah, or every that, other day or once a week yeah. or, you know, so. Um, or or the two days before you harvest, too. <laughs> yeah. Have you done that? No. Okay. Yeah. Just, Some, just we, we did time intervals, but only continuously through the flowering stage. Yeah. We plan on doing that. Yeah, we have another another concept we're going to try out for, we call them booster bars, or yeah, booster bars to, to, to just kind of blow out a certain spectrum at a certain time in the, in the growth process. So you have, it's like a, a little, a little blast of light. Um, it's just to see how that works. Mm -hmm. it, it's interesting because in principle, in other species, this has worked. Yeah. So why isn't it happening in cannabis? You know, and why didn't it happen even for Leiden? Why did it take so long no. for cannabis? Because it's happening. I feel like right LEDs have come a long way. No, no, he's like, you're talking UV the, maybe. The, oh. the, I mean the the effects of UV oh, on yeah. cannabinoid synthesis. Got it. You know, it's we too would hard. we would think well, they should help. Yeah. Well, there's not the, enough. I mean, everything. There's no federal funding, so nobody's yeah, doing the hard. work. You yeah. know, it's hard. It's hard to do the work. Yeah. I mean. But, but yeah, maybe you guys could answer this. I mean, genetics have improved, have been bred for higher, higher cannabinoids since the eighties. Also, yeah. right? No, so, sure. the, so maybe that impact that applied to a lower, naturally, producing cannabinoid plant. Now you have a higher naturally producing cannabinoid plant, and and that effect is much more marginal and maybe, in the noise, pretty much. It, it's tricky because UV light can also degrade cannabinoids. Yeah. So you, wanna, other, you don't want to give them too thing. much. Yeah. We were kind of talking about earlier too. Yeah. Yeah. Talking about too much. Um, I mean, do you think on an indoor environment cultivating cannabis, do you think there's a term which too much PPFD? Yeah, but I think it's higher than we've ever given the plants so far. Um, it's remarkable in some of our studies, and not just our work, but other people's. We keep raising the intensity of the light, 
and the yield keeps going up. And in some of our highest studies, we were giving them 70 moles per meter squared per day, DLI of 70. That's more than they get outside in the field in the middle of the summer. Even if every day was a clear day, they, they still wouldn't get 70. Have you seen a degradation in um, quality or maybe THC? Yes. We, we, as the yield goes up, this thing starts to occur called yield dilution. And the flower buds get bigger, but the cannabinoids don't go up in proportion to flower size. This doesn't always happen, but we've seen it, and other people have seen it as well. Um, the percent THC goes down as the yield goes up. So as a tendency, we see that happening. So you have more plant mass with less... Less concentrated THC, yep. So. Yeah, it needs to go up together to be better, right? You have to size and cannabinoids to go up yeah for you know i mean for jungle boys right just for all cannabis i mean for all cannabis for all cannabis right yeah nobody wants to grow a bunch of big old boof sticks you know (laughs) i don't know you'd be surprised but my shit frosty but but (laughs) as we were talking about earlier rocha it's it's flower color it's flower shape it's concentration smells can can we can we get the yield up and have the exact same quality and it's definitely difficult to, it's like driving, well, your Tesla, you know, 140 miles an hour versus 50. What yes. were you doing with this yeah. guy yeah. on the way here? We were doing a little research. So. Yeah, we're doing some research. But, it, but it's, it's, it's an analogy. We'd be hard to go that fast and still be safe. Yeah, you can't, you can't just be coming into, uh, you know, you're, you want to start your first grow. It's like you're just getting your license, bro. You've never driven a car before ever, and now you want to drive an F1 car. It's like you're yeah. going to crash it, right? So that's kind of the other thing when you start playing with these higher intensities, right? Yeah, hard to keep everything in balance, yeah. Everything happens a lot faster. Yeah. But that part of it is the, the nutrition, the watering, the temperature, everything, so, so that you can drive it fast. Yeah, and not and, crash. And not crash. Crop crashing, that's yeah, what but we call maybe, it. Maybe not exactly crashing, but, but um, denting your car, I mean. Something yeah. something undesirable. If you can't sell your weed, it's a kind of a crash. Yeah. yeah. The um, economically, you know, for like yield to energy usage, is there a sweet spot on PPFD to the canopy that you've kind of? Yeah, I've said broad rule of thumb. I mean, lots of a thousand micromoles per meter square per second is a pretty nice rule of thousand thumb. Thousand PPFD. Yeah, yeah, that's a, and that's a nice round number, um, and and the yield really, even yield and quality both are increasing up to about that number. Yeah, and now can we inch it higher than that? We definitely can for yield, and and quality, but if you I was to pick a number, I'd say a thousand. Yeah, that's what we like. Yeah, we like to see about a thousand. Right? Yeah. Thousands the the number that we we you know like to use in our gardens. Mm-hmm. On on HPS, I was listening to a podcast that you did, um, and you said something about HPS compared to LEDs, and I don't know how long ago it was, but I think it was quite a while ago. 
and you said LEDs are five times more expensive than HPS. Do you think that's still true today? Maybe. The economics are always hard to know because manufacturers give discounts on lights. And so if you look at list price, you know, but then people don't, they get, they buy in volume and they get discounts. And I've had people be real critical of me to say, my God, people get discounts on LEDs all the time. Well, they get discounts on HBS too. Yeah. <laughs> Same thing. In quantity, you get discounts. Um, but man, you get a thousand watt HBS down or $250. Whoa. I mean, that is cheap, cheap, cheap. It's, it's just amazing. That one bulb carries a thousand watts. And now do you replace that with a thousand LEDs at one watt each? It's, it's hard to do. Oh yeah. To replace watt for watt and, and match price. Yeah. You, you, I could definitely see the five times, Yeah, you know, but on PPFD output, you know, or total output, I mean, to get a thousand watt HPS, what is our thousand watt HPS? 1900. Yeah. And then our 645 is 17 and some change. Yeah. sixteen. Similar. Yeah. It's close. It's pretty close. And a little more directed. So you get the, you know, same PPFD or or better because you can put it closer to the canopy. So average. Mm-hmm. I should be asking you, is it still five times as much? No. No, it's like three. Yeah. We're probably like three right now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's getting it's getting better just as not the red diodes. Dude, the red diodes are so expensive. But on a per output basis, they're not that bad. They're they're more expensive, oh. but per PPM. Everything still- we're looking at right now is efficiency. You know, of course we want better quality, but with it we we pay the, the efficiency money. Is, no. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it's I could not believe the price yeah. of those bars. Those are the best the best LEDs in the world right now. I mean, they're 70% radiometric efficiency, which is nuts. And then they're red, which is means that you're getting more photons per watt on top of that. And then the plants like it the best. So you're getting like a win-win-win. And so, yeah, they are newer products, though, so they are more expensive. Uh, but it, it'll we'll get some more players in there, and, and the price will level eyes i think a little bit yeah the coming from a thousand watt metal highlight and then going to a 400 watt led i mean you you're you're getting your money back that's great that's 600 watts yeah when when i've run the numbers for payback for for indoors i mean it can be one year yeah payback you know it's really fast especially in los angeles where your kilowatt hour is like 20 20 cents or something like that oh yeah yeah you know so it 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 can be a power's not cheap in california yeah Mm -hmm. yeah power's not cheap here um hps versus led on a greenhouse i have a you know forty thousand square foot greenhouse just put like 400 double in a thousand watt lux hps is in there um, what do you think? You think LEDs there for greenhouse setting, or would you I, pick HPS? No, I I think we're going to move to LEDs in greenhouses. Um, but it, the payback period when I run the numbers now we're more like four years instead of one year. Well, a four year payback for most business investments that's a no brainer. You do it right away. But in the world of cannabis, people say, oh, I don't know how the, what the market's going to look like. I want a one-year payback. Um, but, but, but also for greenhouses not doing cannabis, 
you know, that's, that's a tough business, right? It's, it's kind of a, a, a slog. So having the extra funds to, to outfit a greenhouse, although there's all these huge greenhouses coming in like uh, app harvest or whatever that, you know, I think are going to take things to the next level. But yeah. The, Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. That's, I should qualify that because cannabis in a greenhouse can be pour on the light. You know, they, they really run the lights a lot, which is where the LEDs, then they pay back because you're, by, you're saving a lot of electricity. But if you're going lettuce, oh, Christ, you can grow lettuce at 500 micromoles just fine. You know, at yeah. way less light. You'd, you need to far less supplemental light to grow stuff like leafy greens. Which extends the, the payback period, right? You're yeah, just, exactly. Everything takes that much now, longer. Now suddenly you're at maybe 12 or 14-year payback, and business owners are going, no, I'm going to stick with HPS. Yeah, the the HPS, I, I, I went with HPS just because we're, we're working on a greenhouse light right now. It's not out yet. Um, but also the spread from an HPS, I was able to cover an 8x8 eight eight area in, in a greenhouse and get pretty significant DLI increase um, for winter compared to, you know, what, what LED that, that I could use to do that. You know, so yeah. Do you need the heat of the light at all out there where you're at? Does it ever get cold during the night where you're like, I got to turn this light on, give me some heat? Yes. Yeah. So that's also kind of also that a little bit of a, a benefit. Factor. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I'm not worried about cooling because I'm using a wet wall. Exactly. So I'm yeah. not, you know, cooling my HPSs. So it's yeah. not a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. I I personally right. What, what footprint do you put them on? Eight eight by eight. Eight by eight. Yeah. Because yeah. it's not the same as like you know. No, I mean, on an indoor, you're like, yeah. what, four and a half by five? Uh, with the aisle space, like four and a half by six? Yeah, so four yeah. and a half by six. I'm eight by eight. Four linear, you know, yeah. down the road. So you get a little bit less intensity in, in, with that spacing. Yeah. Because yeah, you have the sun. But I have the sun. Yeah. Right. But, but yeah. more closer spacing than a, a vegetable greenhouse would use too, right? Yes. Yeah, much closer. Have, have you seen... Um, we always, you know, go back and forth with LED light compared to HPS light and the degradation per foot of, of energy, of photons. Like, we we thought, you know, that we were seeing a greater degradation with LEDs the higher you went up compared to an HPS. Yeah, we, usually we don't call that degradation. We just call that, well, it's called the inverse square law. Yeah. As you go up, the yeah. photons spread out more. Yeah. That is one of the most poorly understood laws when it applies to lighting because it's only for a point source. And even an HPS is not a point source. It's a filament that long. It approaches a point source. But LEDs especially aren't a point source because they're spread out. So inverse square says that the light intensity drops off by half. It's the square root of the distance to the light. That's basically what it is. But it only works for a single point source. And now you have multiple lights. And it, it, the inverse square law just doesn't apply. And because you don't have a point source. If you had a plane of lights here, an infinite plane and an infinite source... You could go three kilometers away and it wouldn't matter. You would have no loss of light <laughs> yeah. because the photons that are going sideways still hit plants. So it depends on the 
focus of the lights and and where the the spread of the lights and where they go because as you go up more photons go sideways and they miss the plants so and, what but what you're talking about is like kind of a perfect situation where you have a really big area and you can hang your lights pretty pretty high up but now when you go indoors uh you, then it matters you, it matters right and 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 so that's what we've been we've been thinking on is is uh canopy penetration and uniformity for you know different settings and different lighting light source yeah. types and and i always come back to it. i like i like the bars because it's it spreads out spatially the sources and it gives them a lot of penetration angles to the into the canopy and also because it's led you can put them very close to the canopy so you can have a um, you can get both high intensity and good uniformity uh, over each each portion of the canopy. So that's, but but yeah, we've been having debates internally about about this stuff, and it's uh, it, I think it just depends on the grow situation, the setting quite a bit. Now yes, now the it also starts to get less critical when you have white walls because the photons mm. aren't completely lost; they bounce back in. Um, and you got to be careful about which photons are sideways because when we talk about penetration, when you have a bunch of leaves at angles, if you gave me two photons straight down or you gave me two photons coming in sideways, I'd pick the two coming in sideways yeah. because they statistically can penetrate deeper in the canopy. For sure. So a lot of people think they all ought to be coming straight down, but it's just the opposite if they're... If they're coming at angles, that's better. Yeah, What's up so with that side light, Roach? Yeah. Well, and if you have the bars, you know, on our four foot, right, or on our, our 645 or our 860, you have these bars that are spread out. And the end bars have, you know, light coming in like this into the canopy, you know, also every other angle. So you're kind of having every angle. You're, you're catching yeah. every angle from a lot of different starting points. The multiple angles, that's the definition of diffuse light. If you put your hand like this and you can't see the shadow, that's diffuse light. And diffuse light penetrates canopies better than direct light. Yeah. One one way I've been thinking about this, Bruce, and tell me if I'm wrong, but like the optimum penetration would come from a situation that's like a cloudy day but has the intensity of a sunny day. Yes, exactly. Sometimes I thought we should put the LEDs around the perimeter and point them, <laughs> point them into the middle. In, in a greenhouse, that could be true, where you don't want to block the sun, so you put them on the sides, and you have laser-like focused LEDs shooting them in sideways. Yeah. That's our next product. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Um, what do you think about LED, LED companies or LEDs that are put in HPS form factors? So they take... LED diodes and they compact it into more of an HPS style fixture. That, to me, that would only be good if it was somehow cheaper or something. I guess you could argue for that if it's shaded less in a greenhouse, but it's just what we're talking about. We want to get them diffuse. We want to get them spread out. The more spread out they are, the better. So concentrating them is going the wrong direction. From un, unless there was some other advantage, cheaper manufacturing, cheaper shipping, or something. But man, if you pack LEDs together, you got a heat problem. You got to get rid of a lot of heat. 
Yeah, you got to get you got to get rid of a lot of heat, and it limits you because now you're stuck going at least two to three foot over the canopy. Yeah, yeah. Which is you're losing efficiency. Yeah. To the canopy, you're losing PPFD. That's why we're we're always you know um, focused on making the white lights wider, which is why we came out with the 860 and made a five foot wide light, um, just so we can get that closer to the canopy. We are gonna work on a similar design, but only for greenhouse. Yeah, I like the bars for greenhouse usage. I think that that's a, a slick uh, place where they could go in and have a lot of flexibility and you could hang them high, you could hang them low. Um, and and I don't think that the high red's gonna have a, a negative impact because it's gonna get washed out by the, by the daylight. Um, but, you know, for some people who want want to have that more compact style of of light we are looking at that we have some new thermal ideas how to manage the heat and have um, really good airflow across the fins and keep the leds cool but but there's some there's some challenges with that because like bruce said you got all the leds close together they're getting hot there and and there's leds that can handle it but they're not the most efficient leds so there's a there's a a trade-off there you can't use the best leds in that setting uh you can use pretty good ones and and you can make some good products but uh there's just some some trade-offs that you're dealing with bruce what's what's nli that that's a term that i started to coin to be it's the opposite of dli dli is daily light integral how many photons do the plants get in a day but when we get to cannabis, it's exquisitely sensitive to light pollution. That's been a real active area of our study is exactly how much light pollution can it tolerate. But one of the questions that comes up is, would a bright light for one hour be the same as dim light for 12 hours? And that's a thing called reciprocity. And the answer is, we don't know, but it might and now you get to the concept of NLI, which is night light integral. Same as day. You add up all the photons at night. And if the if they stay below some threshold, then the lights gonna be the plants are gonna be fine. Doesn't matter when they happened, it's the integral of the whole night. So I've started to use this term to describe the effects of light at night on flowering, especially for cannabis, because it's so sensitive. You could you probably use the moon as like a foundation to start and see start yeah. with the moon, and then work your way up. Yeah, the we, and we have the okay. the moon is as bright as it seems on a full moon night. At the peak, it's only about two nanomoles per meter squared per second. Nanomoles. That's yes. zero point zero zero two micromoles, and you think, wow, this is really bright. But if you go out with a book on a full moon night and try to read it, and you wait till your eyes are adapted, and you get a kid's book with big print, you still can't read the book. Okay. And, and you think, wow, I ought to be able to read this book. But it's not. You point it right at the moon. You, you still can't quite read it. The moon is not enough to trigger night pollution, light pollution in cannabis. Such it, a low diffused light because it's... It's almost like a diffused light, right? The moon, just over such a large meter, but it's such a low amount. 
but it's so yeah. well diffused, right? Yeah. It's reflected sunlight. Yeah. At, at, yeah. Um, and it's also not at the peak in the sky all night long, too. Which True. It, that's the concept 100%. of an integral. It gets up to two and comes back down. But I think it, when we talk about light pollution, what if somebody comes on and turns on a light in the, in the room? Is that enough to trigger it? Well, for sure it is if you leave the light on. But if, what if you only have it on for five minutes? It doesn't contribute very much to that night light integral. Yeah. And it, typically the night light integral is going to have units of nanomoles per meter squared per second. And the daily light integral will be moles per meter squared per second. Won't quite be nanomoles, I'm sorry. It'd be moles per meter squared per night yeah. <laughs> period. Yeah for dark integrated over the dark period yeah how long have you been working on that on that study to to see what the oh we i i a year or two for maybe maybe a year and a half for cannabis we've we looked at colors of light um and their effect on cannabis at night um and and of course intensity and a little bit across different cultivars Cultivars vary from each other for their sensitivity. Um, one of the things we found was green light was really quite uh, effective at inhibiting flowering. And we've always said, oh, green light, that's a safe light, doesn't trigger phytochrome and all these things. But green light, green photons penetrate deep into leaves. And so they were just as effective as red photons in inhibiting flowering. Oh, so all the green lights sold for night yes but our eyes see green light so well we can use dim green light and it's still a good safe light okay. if you have to choose a color for a safe light i just choose green i just make it dim gotcha it's not completely safe it's safer yeah i'd still choose green because you can see those photons so well um i'd heard you're doing a lot of study beyond par or beyond 400 to 700 nanometers can you go into what you're working on yeah we've especially studied far red uh, photons and this is partly because we have a really efficient far red led and that's a longer wavelength and what we've been interested in is do those photons cause photosynthesis because the conventional thinking is that there's a sharp cutoff. If it's 710 nanometers, forget it. There's no photosynthesis. And there's this thing called the Emerson enhancement effect. It's the effect of far red photons on photosynthesis. And Emerson did this work in the 1950s. And it was really brilliant work. And it was in the papers, in the, in the scientific literature. And then Emerson got killed in a plane crash and nobody followed up his work. But now we came along with far-red LEDs, and my colleague at University of Georgia, Mark Van Neersel, started to study these, and then he had a really brilliant PhD student, Xu Yang Zhen, who worked on this, published papers. And then she came to my lab as a postdoc for a few years, um, and, and we continued to study this. And as a result of all of our studies, we now have what I would call compelling evidence that far-red photons cause photosynthesis. And that's a big deal because we always say photosynthesis is 400 to 700 nanometers. 
And if you're a student and you don't put that down right, you flunk the class. Well, now we think that's wrong. It should be 400 to 750 nanometers, which means we could be putting some far-red LEDs, very efficient far-red LEDs in fixtures, and still increase photosynthesis. Are you seeing higher photosynthesis? Higher. Higher than you would in other other ranges in that 4700? one... Far red photon is equal to one shorter wavelength. It's Got it's it. it's not equal. It's not like they're magic. They're twice as good. They're just equally good. Got it. So they should be included in the definition it, of, yeah. of photosynthetic radiation. Yeah. So yeah. it's you you'd suggest, and I think you've you've talked to people about this, uh, redefining par or extending the the par definition to go from four hundred to seven fifty nanometers. Yep. And because of that, we call that EPAR, like a lowercase e, capital P-A-R, extended range mm-hmm. PAR, to, so that people don't get confused with the old definition. Extra PAR. Extra, there you go. <laughs> and, and, and just to close the loop on this, though, Apogee, do they have EPAR sensors so you can capture that, that input yeah. to the plants? Yeah. Okay. Since that's my company, I didn't bring that up. But I think yeah. I, I, think but, I oh, actually just got up. one of those, actually. But I think I got one sitting <laughs> on my you? desk. I but, but yeah, so. those have been especially popular with cannabis growers, especially because you get a bigger number from the lights. But let, let's talk about the far red, too, because it, it has kind of specific physiological responses, right? It makes Does it make the leaves broader? Is that one of the things? The, the, the fundamental thing we know happens, we've known this for 50 years, it enhances cell expansion and plants in the shade get more far red and, and the, the cells get bigger. And so when the cells of a leaf get bigger, this is all good, really, really good. They're capturing more light, but the cells in the stem get bigger too. And so the plant gets taller and most plants, when you get too much far red, they, they just get tall and that's bad. You don't want them tall. So we got, it's like a blowtorch. You got to be very careful about using far red photons, not to overuse them. We're going to look at that. What was your DLI number that you saw was uh, too high on those, on those far reds? Was there one that you ended up coming to, or it was like you were pulsing it or running it for however many hours a day? Yeah, no, they were run in the daytime along with the other lights. And really the, it's a sort of a linear increase. The more far red you give them, the taller the plants. And then after that, it's what's acceptable to a grower. You know, so 10% could be use, taller, Could be useful taller. in certain situations. It, it yeah. could. Yeah, it it could absolutely yeah. could. I think, I think, Bruce, you suggested kind of at the end of edge, maybe that's a good time to uh, to apply some far red. Is it efficient on scale, though? I think mm-hmm. is, is, is what, you know. I, I don't see any reason that wouldn't scale, the effects of far red on photosynthesis. Um, Even but, efficiently, yeah. Inefficiency, yeah. It's they're it, pretty efficient. They're yeah. they're like they're almost yeah. as efficient as the deep red LEDs. Got it. You're, uh, oh, you're you're talking yeah. about the electrical efficiency. Yep. yep. Electrical efficiency. Sorry. Yeah. Well, so, sometimes yeah. you they're, you have a choice. You can just add more far deep red, right? Yeah. Or you could do far red. Yeah. Uh, and and yeah. And so it's not always better to just do far red because you can. You could just put more deep red in there. Yep. And plants love it. It's super efficient, but with this physiological effect, you might want to, you know, put that in at the right certain time. Certain stage. Yeah, exactly. Certain stage, exactly. 100%. They're, they're going to be expensive. 
they're not mass produced like white LEDs. So that we got to be buying enough to get the price down. Yeah. They're not as expensive as UV LEDs. So well, I think. okay, and could, they're, they're much more efficient. Could our they're much fixtures, more efficient? Yeah. Could our fixtures be high, uh, high and you know, and and red? Yeah. So so what we're looking at right now with some with some testing that's getting initiated is is um for the veg. We're also looking in flower, but I, I think veg is more promising is to, to put a little bit of far red in there to, to swap out a little red for a little bit of far red just to get a little control on the plant morphology to, to in the veg phase, you know, m make the leaves bigger, kind of branch it out. So then you put it in the flower and you're absorbing that much more light. Yeah. And but could they already be E par? We're just not measuring it. Either way you measured it because we don't have any far red in our in our production fixtures, they would measure the same, whether you measure it by EPAR or PAR, because we don't use those LEDs. But if you measured an HPS, right, with an EPAR meter versus a PAR meter, you'd get different numbers because they have light. HPS has about three, four percent far red photons. And historically, we just haven't counted them. Do you, Bruce, do you think there's prospects that it would go beyond 750 nanometers that that there's photosynthetic prospects I don't, I don't like to answer no but to much th many things but the answer is very very unlikely <laughs> and and right from the start we can show that after 750 they're just not absorbed there's no pigments to absorb them and if they don't get absorbed they can't do anything i've, I've seen some plasma lights claiming effects beyond 750 and it's like yeah i don't know that that seems unlikely they, they have to if they make that claim they have to come up with the physiological mechanism underlying their observation and it has an example look at the huge spike from high pressure sodium at 830 nanometers does that do anything no just heat yeah and it's a huge spike but yeah. doesn't help anything so do you think the that far red um, in the HPS uh, HPS could lengthen internode spacing? So you're like you said earlier, the plant's growing taller, but is that affecting internode spacing? Yes, in, in our studies, it has. It's not very much, so it does, it's not a big effect, but it's but it's there. You can measure it. So farther red could be having larger spacing on internodes, mm -hmm. which. You know, it kind of brings me back to metal highlight and why when growers were using HID fixtures, they used metal highlight in the veg to keep them short. And then, you know, far red in the HPS because they were getting longer, lengthier plants in and in, in general when they used it, uh, HPS. Yeah. So maybe yeah. it's the far red. Okay. Well, the, let me think about we have it's been a while since we used metal halide lamps but i don't think they have much far red i'm just trying to remember that no but keeping the plant short so we came from a background now we're, now we're in led and we're going towards high red um which we're getting shorter stockier plants with that um but in the past when we were limited to hid we were just using metal halide mm -hmm. and we use metal halide to keep the plant shorter and we use HPS because we knew they'd get a lot, a lot of stretch. And maybe that has to do, you know, the higher red and the far red is creating that yeah. stretch. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think you'd be careful when when you, your red fixtures are so much more efficient, you get higher intensity too. Yeah. And that intensity keeps them short. Yeah. Granted, they still have blue in them. Yeah. They still have, yeah, a, you know, still have a, good, a good chunk of blue in there to kind of keep short as yeah. well, right? Because yeah. if you were to 10% go 100% blue. red, yeah. it's almost like that. You get into that far red where they just, internodal spacing is way stretched yeah. out. But 10%, yeah, 10% blue. And is, is pretty... It's, it's a lot. It's a good chunk. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, cool. What, what, what are you excited on that you're working on recently? Like, what are you like that yeah. I can't wait to go back and, and look <laughs> at this one growth chamber that I'm doing? Yeah. Oh, because you've done a lot. Yeah, you've done it's, a lot of experiments. Can I can I pick the top three or four? <laughs> yeah, that, that, someone asked me my favorite strain. I'm like, I can't tell you that. Yeah, I yeah, got, there I got you multiple. Go. There yeah. you go. Yeah. Um. So I, one of the things I'm really excited about is we've remodeled this big system to do canopy gas exchange. So these these are sealed chambers, and there's ten of them. It's a very sophisticated system, but it measures the metabolic rate of the community of plants every few seconds in, in that chamber throughout the whole day. So it's like people, how fast are they breathing now? And you turn the dials and you look at what the plant response is. Um, and this is for NASA, I'm assuming, well, for space, because you're kind of looking at it for that well, chamber. In reality, yeah, NASA paid for a good part of that, but there's some cannabis plants in the chamber now, though. So. Okay, yeah. cool. I like but, that. So. But that shows. Sorry, that shows you exactly how fast photosynthesis is happening. How, how you, you're counting the exact amount of carbon dioxide yes. that's getting taken up. So uh, you know exactly whatever your conditions are, what what that rate is. That's that's cool. I went out and I saw maybe an earlier version at your lab, and that's that's cool because it just tells you exactly what what the me- metabolism is, yeah. right? Yeah photosynthesis in the day and then respiration at night which is equally important what happens to all that carbon there it's it's going backwards at night and the plant is resynthesizing other things at night of course like maybe making cannabinoids at night yeah how do we know they're only made in the day they're probably made all the time for sure so that's a it's a canopy gas exchange system very cool. That sounds. And, I would love to see that. And it just gives us a lot of potential to test different things. We can look at short-term effects in there, humidity effects, temperature effects, interacting factors. Over, and yeah, you're playing God. You're just playing yeah. God on this chamber, right? Yeah, you're controlling you, everything. If you want to get yeah. something that gets you out of bed in the morning, well, go in there and turn those dials and yeah. look at the lines on the graph. For sure. Way cool. For sure. Yeah. yeah. That, that is cool. Yeah, it's awesome. And and what are what are the other yeah, ones? Well, <laughs> we had a pause there. I'm I'm particularly interested in studying light pollution at night. Um, how much do colors matter? How much does there reciprocity? That what what can we do with this? Um, we know that there can be genetic selection to make plants less sensitive to light pollution at night. And one of the ways we know that is we tested soybeans are also really sensitive to light pollution in the literature from 50 years ago. So we test soybeans. They're not very sensitive at all. Well, what's wrong? Is that literature all wrong? So we called the USDA and we said, we need some of these exact same lines you were using 50 years ago. 
and they sent us the seeds, and we tested them. By God, they were ultra-sensitive to light pollution. Yeah, that's, so a, the, that's the thing genetics. that's happening with cannabis right now. You know, uh, yes. Some people are like, oh, yeah. you can do this with cannabis. It's like, you can do that with that specific one. Yes, you know, it's yes. The same, same thing as grapes and wine industry and different genetics and, yeah. Yeah. So Huge I think breeding-wise, we, we could select away from light sensitivity, but... It'll take a while. Yeah, there's been a lot of selective breeding for higher THC and color and stuff mm-hmm. over the past few years. And, you know, it, some of this stuff kind of gets lost in translation, mm-hmm. you know, down the down the way. There's a lot of interest just in the whole planet in light pollution, you know, yeah. dark sky movement and all that stuff. Yeah. But Apogee sells a light pollution sensor. And, and guess what? Lots of cannabis growers are buying them now to check their light pollution. Do you think plants can see the uh, IR from the uh, cameras? Really good question. So we bought some high-intensity IRs. Yep. Because I always see it. When I look at the cameras in the rooms, you see this huge, it looks like a white light over the canopy. Yep. And then you see it, you're like, that's the, the IR. And, and we've recently published a paper on this. And the answer is, if the intensity is high enough, they can see it. But high enough means right next to a parking lot spotlight IR camera. Got you it. would never have that anywhere near that in a room. Yeah. So, no. The, the, the practical answer is no. You, you just have to have one little plant surrounded by IR cameras. Then they could start to detect it. it. It's all intensity. A yes, lot, a, a lot of its intensity and when you're talking. That's yeah. 860 nanometer. Those, those. I thought I thought it was 850. Okay. But it's and then see then there's a tail, and we think that's the photons in the tail that are doing it. Mm-hmm. The ones down below 800. Um, but but the the quick answer for any practical purposes, absolutely not. Yeah. Don't worry yeah. about it. But I know I know run, people wonder. Yeah. Well, they yeah. run around with black tape to tape them over, oh, and, yeah. Yeah. and there's circumstantial observations that the hermaphrodites next to those plants, all kinds of things. But yeah. in our in our studies, no, yeah. the the intensity is nowhere near high enough. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Very cool. Cool. What's it, what else is on the list, Brian? Nah, that's it. We're good. What's that on was your awesome. list? What's on your list, Morgan? What didn't we get? Oh, we we touched on it, but physiologically, the green green photons. You know what? They're they are photosynthetic. They work. People have shied away from them for in the LED time frame because they're slightly less efficient uh, than the blue or the red. And but we touched on it because they're good. So people can see what they're doing, but plant-wise, what what are the plants? What is the plant response to green photons? They're once they're absorbed, they're every bit as good as any other color. And but we physiologists brought them on themselves because we published textbooks that show absorption of chlorophyll in blue and and red, and hardly any absorption in green. And so people say, well, the green photons are worthless. But they also penetrate, and they're the, the best color for penetrating deep in the canopy and getting to lower leaves. If you take a leaf like this, and a green photon might be 10% reflected, but it's, it's uh, highly transmitted to lower leaves as well, so that spreads the light out in the canopy. So that makes green photons really unique and valuable. We would use them a lot more if they if there was more efficient LEDs to make them. 
Yeah. Right now we get them from uh, white LEDs. Yeah, you only get them from the phosphor conversion, which isn't mm-hmm. is actually pretty efficient, but it's not as efficient as just the pure blue or the pure red LED. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think green photons have been underrated, the value of them for uh, plants. Just just thinking about my list here. Again. Oh, no, we covered a lot. Yeah, we did a lot. Yeah, <laughs> we dope. covered a lot. We, it was sick. We, you were asking me about interesting stuff. We, we really do a lot of research on nutrition, too. I'm going to make it writing. out. So. I'm going to make it out there and come yeah. see you okay. soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. a killer lab. Yeah. Some some. I heard through the grapevine some visiting scientist went home and he says, oh, man, that was like the Disneyland of plant research labs. And I think he meant it because of all the colors of lights. Um, but there's a lot of hydroponics and a lot of nutrition research going on to ma- manipulate plant growth and, and uh, uh, plant health morphology. and quality and morphology with... Uh, nutrient ratios oh no 100 percent. there's yep. a lot of potential there and we God, see it as well 17 essential elements is a lot of you know so it's almost like 17 factorial possible combinations of things yeah it's complex tons of variables yeah yeah climate all the inputs one of the big things I'll, on that note i'm big on is we, we've really done a lot of studies on phosphorus and we could just go on for quite a bit of how much phosphorus and I started from the standpoint of cannabis doesn't need any more phosphorus than any other crop. Well, after a bunch of studies, I realized, no, it does need more, but not way more. And people give cannabis plants egregious amounts of phosphorus. And phosphorus is a horrible environmental pollutant. That's algal blooms and lakes and rivers. So we need to use enough phosphorus to get good quality and good yield, but no more. Without being wasteful. Without being wasteful. Yeah. Of course, that's what we have to do with yeah. everything. That's why, you know, tra- transitioning into d- different energies and different, you know, efficient lighting systems and everything, you know, everything is about efficiency now. So adding, having a phosphorus additive, you know, uh, for cannabis, I mean, kind of not, not not necessary as much as we, the usual cannabis user uses. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. we know that because we're Athena. Yeah. But... I mean, you used to... You know, I mean, it used to like 10 mLs of liquid cool bloom, like yeah. you know, like, <laughs> yeah. Now we use yeah. zero, yeah, you know, yeah. Oh, yeah. for sure. That's that it, change it, is coming in the industry. Here, here's what happens with phosphorus after some studies. I could tell you all plants pack their seeds with phosphorus to give them a good start in life, they have a concentrated phosphorus so they can germinate and start growing with a good. It's like a bag lunch for the Hence seed. Hence why we recommend using Athena Bloom, you know, Bloom yeah, exactly. and, and clones. Everyone yeah. always asks, like, why are you using Athena Bloom, Yeah, the phosphorus? Yeah. So now comes cannabis with no seeds at all, but a big flower. And that flower panics. And it says, I am getting bigger. I need more phosphorus, even though there's no seeds. So it sucks phosphorus and the flower gets incredibly high phosphorus way more than it would ever need it's just storage phosphorus and it's such a big magnet for phosphorus we've seen what we think is cannibalizing phosphorus out of the leaves into the flower so at the end of the life cycle the leaves the phosphorus in the leaves start going down even though we're feeding ample pea and it's all going into the flower 
So the solution for us is, and everybody is just give them more phosphorus, feed the flower so it doesn't cannibalize the leaves. So that's what, can you explain that? Is that why where the phosphorus came, such high phosphorus in cannabis production? Is that's where, that's that, so we're saying where it, it came from? Yes, that, that, that makes cannabis unique. Sin semia cannabis, I guess, yeah. without seeds. Um, there, there's no seeds, so the, the, that clump of flower, which gets to be large, has a lot of phosphorus in it. And, and it's not used physiologically, it's just storage phosphorus. Oh, it's not used to increase production no. or increase quality. No. It's no. just the phosphorus is being stored there. It's just stored there. Yeah. Do you think that's, you know, negatively impacts like quality or you know, or negatively impacts people, you know, smoking it in a certain... No, I don't, no, I don't no. think it hurts anything there. It's more that it sucks valuable phosphorus out of the leaves, and the leaves have to have the phosphorus for the ATP production, lots of things that the leaves need phosphorus for. The reason we can say that is when we take weekly samples, we see these flower buds going way up in phosphorus, and the leaves going down. So feeding more phosphorus is sucking phosphorus from the leaves, putting it into the bud. Well, feeding kind of feeds both leaves okay. and flowers. That's okay. what it does. But you got so much that the that flowers don't cannibalize the leaves for phosphorus. So that's the physiological process that people understood, understood or understand. But but then it got over over responded to with people using too much well, phosphorus. I, I don't think anybody's besides us has looked at the movement of phosphorus, the translocation. Okay. What it came from was just empirical studies. If we give the plants more phosphorus, does the yield go up? And lots of people have data that, yep, the yield goes up with more phosphorus. There's evidence that's really specific to cultivars. My, my colleague, Nareet Bernstein in Israel, she came to visit the lab last summer. She published a really nice paper at Frontiers in Plant Science on phosphorus. And if you look at her data carefully, one cultivar was a flat line. It didn't respond to extra phosphorus, but the other cultivar did. And she went up to quadruple the amount of phosphorus and the yield was still going up. So that's one of those things where it just suggests there's a lot of genetic interaction. Some cultivars benefit from higher, some don't. Um, but I think when somebody gets some data, a heritage grower gets data that phosphorus helps. They just give everything high phosphorus and real high, like an order of magnitude higher than the plants might really need. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Oh, uh, to finish off, Morgan, you're working on some projects. How many spectrums you, you got in the pipeline at, that, that are going to Jungle Boys? Uh, six. Six, I think. So we're we're just looking at, you know, so Bruce and I talk and, and I read his papers and, and see other papers and, 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 you know, I, I'm pretty convinced we have great spectrum that are, that are optimized, but I, I still, you know, want to ask Roach to try out some UV to see if, if, you know, see what, it, see what it does firsthand in a, in a production environment, um, during, you know, during the flower cycle and then, um, looking at some far red. <laughs> some far red with our um r80 spectrum taking out some of the the red and, and putting putting in some far red to see how it affects the the, the morphology of the plant because when you when you walk into to a production scale study like that and and you you have 
the kind of the a b study the two different treatments and you walk in there and you can see right away what what's the difference right we make a, a pretty pretty modest uh, adjustment to the spectrum and and roach can walk in there after a few days and be like whoa this is this is good this is bad and then if it's kind of in between that's where we we have to dig a little deeper so we're looking at a bunch of spectrum blue uv far red um you know that that are added on to our our um you know our basic spectrum now and then we're looking at some booster bar stuff which gives you like a little added flexibility yeah are you doing uh uva uvb not not doing uvb because uh those leds are so inefficient that to provide a dose it's you, yep. it, you have to use a lot right and then um it's, it's not good for people to be around now that's that's kind of manageable but i don't want to be giving people sunburns uh and and the LEDs don't last very long, so they kind of degrade super quick. So I think that's a case where I'm not sure that it works. And even if it worked a little bit, I'm pretty sure it's not worth it. So that's okay. that's where we're at. But that said, we made some extra special products that have never been made before and gave them to some researchers, including Bruce, to see what they can find out also. Sounds fun. Right on. All right, Bruce, really appreciate you. Yeah, thanks. It's been it's, fun. Yeah, it's good hanging out today. Good. Roach, thanks. I know you got a lot going on. All good. Morgan, appreciate it's you. It was great to be here. Yeah, yeah. thanks. Been thanks. wanting to get this guy in here for a while. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. Appreciate you guys. Thanks, Morgan. See you. Thanks, Roach. Thanks.